This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 29, The Battle of Cannae. was an ancient village quite close to the east coast of the Italian peninsula. It would have been south of the Carapelli River in the modern Italian region of Apulia. This area of Italy may well have been settled or visited by Mycenaean Greeks during the second millennium BCE. However, the Mycenaeans disappeared in the late 2nd millennium BCE and then there was a general dark age where we don't really have a great deal of evidence about what was going on. We do believe that this area of the Italian peninsula was occupied by a peoples called the Eupagians who were Indo-European migrants to the region where they dispersed into three separate groups. There was the Downians to the north, the Messapians to the south, and the Puchetsians in the central area, which is the area where the village of Cannae can be found. It is very difficult for historians to understand this area of the Italian peninsula before its Roman conquest, as there is very little evidence to go by and we almost rely on later texts to give us indications as to what was going on. Inscriptions discovered from before this time have led linguists to determine that the Yepagians spoke a type of Indo-European languages which have been named Mesapic languages. The Yepagians are believed to have migrated across the Adriatic Sea from Illyria very late in the 2nd millennium BCE at a similar time to the downturn in Mycenaean culture in southeast Europe. We believe that Italic people would have been living on the peninsula at the time of these migrations and that they also, as Indo-European language speakers, would have migrated into the Italian peninsula before the Mycenaeans and the Eupagians. So this area of Italy would have been a mixture of cultures. At the end of the 8th century BCE, a new wave of Greek migrants arrived when the Dorians from the city of Sparta landed in the far south of the Italian east coast and colonised the land by creating the city of Taras, which became the Roman city of Tarentum, and the modern city of Tarento. This would have been to the south of the Eupagians. The Italic people to the north of this region before Roman expansion were the Samnites, who we spoke about in relation to the earliest expansions 
of the Roman Republic. The Samnites are classed as a type of Italic people, so as a culture, they wouldn't have been influenced by the Yepagian migrations as much as the people to their south. We don't really know a lot about the Samnites during the period before Roman expansion, however. So these lands, including the area surrounding the village of Cannae, were mysterious to history, but we can determine that they were likely to be quite simple societies by comparison to other emerging city-states of southern Europe. They would have likely lived in small agricultural societies with local rulers or chiefs. As more Greek societies landed in the far south of the Italian peninsula, by the time of the early Roman Republic, we can determine that the village of Cannae would have sat in lands to the north of Magna Graecia, the Greek colonised area of the Italian peninsula, and that those lands would have been occupied by the Eupagians closely bordered to their north by Samnites. So for the Romans to reach Cannae, they would have had to have travelled through Samnite territory, as would the Carthaginians too. The river running along the land across the north side of the village of Cannae is called the Ophanto, and it empties out into the Adriatic Sea, which is approximately five miles or eight kilometres to the northeast of the village itself. The Roman Republic As we have learned in the previous episode, the city of Rome in classical study began as a kingdom in the 8th century BCE. Although we can feel confident that a settlement existed there for many centuries beforehand. The kings were elected by the noblemen of the city who formed an official governing body called the Roman Senate, who regulated the king's activity so that there would be accountability for all parties. It was originally like any other city which was just trying to survive in a landscape of different cities and cultures by succeeding in a trade network and defending or attacking other cities where it felt necessary. One of the most significant events of the development of the city of Rome was the overthrow of the monarchy during a millennium in which dependency on an individual monarch was becoming an unpopular thing due to the occasionally egomaniacal attitude of some of the rulers. So the Roman Senate itself would look to regulate that problem, and especially so in 509 BCE when Rome overthrew its king Tarquin the Proud and became a republic, something we discussed back in episode 25. The one thing that Rome was able to do within its patchwork of Italian peninsula societies was achieve a high percentage of success in battle against its neighbours. These neighbours would have been Latins, Sabines and Etruscans. Despite its successes against other societies, the Romans would have to reorganise itself internally to satisfy its own population of people, many of whom were trapped in a class of commoners called the plebeians, who would have had 
very limited civil rights. In order to prevent the plebeians from seceding and forming a rival Roman political system against the Roman aristocracy or patricians, Rome would need to make itself a much more inclusive society where plebeians would have influence over the city's decisions. These reforms were able to keep Rome together and focused on its own interests in the region generally. But the reforms were gradual and it would take a couple of centuries before the plebeians felt completely included. The Romans were not completely invulnerable though and the city was sacked by Celtic invaders from the north at the beginning of the 4th century BCE and this might have served as a reminder to Rome that it was not unbeatable and it would have been a reminder that Rome would have to be willing to defend itself as a potentially wealthy target. Rome would need to recover quickly and in the aftermath a battered and bruised Rome decided to come back stronger and embarked on a programme of expansion of influence. Initially Rome would gain influence over a large area along the west coast of the Italian peninsula after winning battles against its Latin neighbours before battling against the Samnites and extending their influence across the peninsula to the east coast. Going into the 3rd century BCE and the invasion of King Pyrrhus of Epirus from the Balkan peninsula into the south of the Italian peninsula forced the Romans into focusing itself southwards in order to resist the invasion. Pyrrhus would cause a lot of problems on the battlefield for the Romans, especially with the support of the city of Tarento. Fortunately, Pyrrhus would eventually need to evacuate the Italian peninsula and the Romans decided that it would be sensible to extend their influence over the southern lands of the Italian peninsula and in particular the Tarentines who had stood against them. The Romans would effectively end up with control of all the lands of the Italian peninsula south of Rome itself. Carthage Carthage originally started as a North African colony of the Phoenician city of Tyre, which was a city on the Levantine coast in the far east of the Mediterranean Sea. Carthage was originally one of a number of colonies settled by both the Phoenicians and the Greeks during the earliest centuries of the first millennium BCE. Carthage was one of the more successful colonies though and would soon become the largest Punic settlement following the orientalisation of Phoenicia. It became wealthy through a rich trade network and an advanced maritime ability. Soon Carthage would be respected as an independent entity in its own right. Its maritime abilities challenged only by the Greeks and the Etruscans. Carthage would have a treaty with the early Roman Republic so the two entities were on sensible and friendly terms with each other. 
while the Romans were annexing Italian peninsula territory to expand its area of influence, the Carthaginians were creating colonies and treaties on foreign soil, so both entities were expanding their influence, but they were using slightly different means from one another to do so. One of the first issues that the Carthaginians would encounter would be on the island of Sicily. Syracuse was originally a Corinthian colony that, like Carthage, had also developed as an individual power looking to expand its own trade network and imperial influence. This would bring Syracuse into direct conflict with the Carthaginians as Carthage wanted to maintain control over the very centrally important waterways around the island of Sicily, which the Syracusans must have felt that they had some rights over being the most important city on the island. This would lead to a series of conflicts called the Sicilian Wars which we discussed back in Volume 2 during Episode 9. The Syracusans would score early victories in these conflicts which caused the Carthaginians to sue for peace but the Carthaginians could not accept losing its territories on Sicily and continued to plan and engage in conflict with the Syracusans. Both sides spent the best part of the 5th and 4th centuries BCE with at least a very close eye on each other, keen to prevent the other from achieving any kind of dominance over Sicilian land and water. It was not really until other parties such as King Pyrrhus of Epirus became involved in Sicilian affairs that the entire landscape of Sicilian history would begin to change. Syracuse would be supportive of Pyrrhus's invasion of Sicily and together they would work to expel the Carthaginians from Sicily and they almost did it had Pyrrhus not had to abandon the project and head back to the Italian peninsula to deal with the Romans. Carthage was granted a reprieve and consolidated its position on Sicily once again with that uneasy relationship with the Syracusans on the opposite side of the island. It was at this point that the Romans became involved in the politics of Sicily and this was not a welcome involvement for the Carthaginians who had always seen the Romans as someone that they had a positive agreement with historically. The Romans would support the Mamertines of the city of Messana, who were overlooking the extremely important strategical waterway of the Strait of Messina, and this could cause huge problems for the Carthaginians, and so a conflict arose between Carthage and Rome on the island of Sicily, known as the First Punic War. After a long drawn out conflict with the Romans, the Carthaginians were finally expelled from the island of Sicily and after internal conflict, the Barsid family became a prominent family who would take a good degree of control over the direction of Carthage from now on. The most important member of the Barsid family at this time was Hamilcar Barca who decided to expand Carthaginian influence on the Iberian Peninsula in order to generate the wealth needed to pay the repatriations demanded by the Romans following the Carthaginian defeat of the First Punic War. Hamilcar Barca would be somewhat successful in expanding Carthaginian influence on the Iberian Peninsula right up until his death 
but he always appeared to maintain a profound hatred of the Romans for what they had done to his mother country and he instilled that feeling into his offspring. Hannibal Barker One of Hamilcar's sons was Hannibal Barker, who would take command of the Carthaginian forces on the Iberian Peninsula some years after his father's death. Hannibal would have been born in North Africa, in or around the city of Carthage, and during the Carthaginian struggles with the Romans over Sicily. We don't really know a lot about Hannibal's childhood, and a few legendary stories exist about his father's desire to impregnate the mind of his son with a deep hatred of the Romans. It appears that Hannibal, as a child, did accompany his father to the Iberian Peninsula, where he would have learned the skills that Hamilcar adopted to bring the Celtiberian residents to Hill, whether by diplomatic or forceful means. Hannibal would have been just 18 or 19 years old when his father died in 228 BCE, so command would pass to the husband of one of Hannibal's older sisters, and that man was Hastrobal the Fair. Hannibal would continue to serve the Carthaginian army well under the rule of his brother-in-law. It would be under the rule of Hastrobal that the agreement of the Ebro River was negotiated with the Romans where the Carthaginians would be allowed the freedom to subjugate the lands to the south of the river. When Hastrobal the Fair was killed in 221 BCE, it would be Hannibal's turn to command the Carthaginians. With Hastrobal the Fair being much more of a diplomat than a warmonger, the Carthaginians saw Hamilcar Barca's military ambition in his son Hannibal and the nature of Carthage would change. Hannibal would punish the city of Saguntum for asking the Romans to help them to repel the Carthaginians despite Saguntum being south of the Ebro River. This would escalate tensions between the Carthaginians and the Romans and the Second Punic War started. Hannibal would take a large army from the Iberian Peninsula to the Italian Peninsula via an incredible land crossing over the Pyrenees, across the Rhone River and famously over the Alps. Hannibal would emerge from the Alps with around 40,000 men a little shy of 10,000 cavalry and almost 40 war elephants. If Hannibal's successful journey wasn't enough of an achievement, what he would do next would be unprecedented. The Romans were aware of the direct danger and it was likely that they believed that they should be able to repel Hannibal's invasion and so they sent forces to deal with him. Hannibal's gift was his military guile, which enabled him to outwit the Romans multiple times. To the north of the Italian peninsula, a large battle took place where Hannibal fooled the Roman consul Tiberius Sempronius Longus into a rash move at the Battle of the Trebia, which caused him defeat. 
so Hannibal was able to advance southwards on the Italian peninsula. Another Roman army pursued Hannibal's Carthaginians to Lake Trasimene, where an incredible ambush took place. Hannibal once again showed some real military expertise by enticing the Romans into a trap. But the Romans were in huge numbers, so for Hannibal to pull off an ambush of an army of this size is something of a rare achievement in military history. So with Hannibal being such a well-moulded and tactically expert military leader, just who could the Romans turn to to deal with this problem? Gaius Terentius Varro We do not know much about Varro due to the Roman nature of creating new consuls every year meant that there were so many Roman military commanders and the fact that Hannibal was being so successful in his Roman invasion almost highlighted the flaws in that Roman system. Varro was born of a plebeian family, so he was not born into the aristocracy. However, Rome had reformed itself enough that by now someone of Varro's humble status at birth could now hold an important office of the state. Due to this more capitalist attitude of the Romans in the 3rd century BCE, Varro was able to use the wealth that his father had acquired as a respected butcher to climb the political ladder. Varro would be granted the official position of a Roman praetor, which in this era would have enabled him to have taken command of military units and possibly also to act as a Roman magistrate. It is thought that he could have worked in places such as Sardinia, but now that he was a member of the Roman Senate, he would also be influential over some of the military appointments as well. Eventually, Varro's big moment would come when in 216 BCE he was elected to be one of the two Roman consuls alongside Lucius Aemilius Paulus. By this time, Hannibal had defeated the Roman armies at the river Trebia and Lake Trasimene and so the Romans needed to appoint fearless consuls who could deal with the Hannibal problem directly. Traditionally, each consul would lead their own army. But so serious was the Hannibal problem that Varro and Paulus, the two Roman consuls, decided that they should combine their consular armies into a huge military force that could eliminate the threat of Hannibal once and for all. Prelude to the Battle Many historians muse over the circumstances surrounding the Punic Wars and its deep-rooted motivations, and the period of time leading up to the Battle of Cannae is no exception. Why did Hannibal choose not to attack Rome after its initial military victories? Why did he head south and set up a base camp near the village of Cannae? Also, why did the Romans hold back so long before launching an attack on Hannibal, who was within their own territory? The Roman military dictator Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosus earned the nickname of Cunctator in reference 
to his hesitance to engage Hannibal directly in battle before 216 BCE. However, surely if we are making the same criticism of both sides, then the reason for this could be pretty obvious. In my opinion, after some military exchanges between Hannibal and the Romans in the previous year or two, Hannibal must have realised that Rome was heavily fortified and that he would probably only have one chance to succeed and that the best thing to do would be to create a power base in the south, possibly knowing that there may have been some anti-Roman sentiment that could be exploited. Hannibal may be able to take advantage of some of the much-needed agricultural land and local manpower to strengthen his army and make the invasion of Rome as mighty as possible. For the Romans, they would have been surprised by Hannibal's ability and their military forces depleted by Hannibal's victories over them. Knowing that Hannibal was not heading directly to Rome, the Romans surely would have felt it be more sensible to rebuild its military strength by summoning manpower from all corners of its vast territory and take a measured approach to engaging Hannibal, as the bold and brassy approach that the Romans had previously taken had not worked against the wily Hannibal. However, beware because that is only my opinion and there are many opinions depending on whose work you choose to read. For Hannibal, the choice of Cannae was not as random as it might seem. Occupation of this area somewhat denied the Romans the freedom of an important supply route. As we mentioned before, the two consuls, Varro and Paulus, had pulled their consular military forces and as per Roman tradition, they swapped overall command between them at regular intervals. The Romans marched to Cannae to engage Hannibal and his army once and for all, and it would be Varro who would have no interest in delaying things any longer. He would wait for his turn to command the combined army of Rome and notify the Carthaginians that he was here to do battle. Varro would have confidence and it's possible that with eight Roman military legions, possibly totalling 80,000 men or more, that he believed the weight of numbers would be too much for the Carthaginians. The Roman army would include loyal Etruscan allies, as well as local Samnites and Eapages, including over 6,000 cavalry. Hannibal's army was possibly less than 50,000 strong but with a large number of cavalry and predominantly made up of men who had been acquired throughout the Carthaginian realm of influence such as North Africa, Iberia and Gaul. The huge Roman army may have been packed in 50 to 70 ranks uniformly spread widely across the flat and open-planed battlefield that the Romans would have preferred to limit the resourceful Hannibal from exploiting the trickiness of a more hazardous landscape as he had done so successfully in the past. The Carthaginian infantry would line up opposite the Roman forces with the middle of Hannibal's lesser number pressing forward from the ranks in a bid to entice the Romans into an attack. The Battle of 
Cannae. The Romans, confident with their large numbers and under the aggressive command of Varro, surged forwards with their infantry against the prominently positioned Carthaginian front line. As the Romans attacked the Carthaginians, the Carthaginians began to retreat and the Romans forced the Carthaginians deeper and deeper. Hannibal was banking on this being the outcome of the opening exchange. He could now start to execute his desperate plan to defend himself against this huge onslaught. To either side of the central units, Hannibal had deployed his Libyan veteran infantry and as the Roman frontline advanced, the Libyans would advance either side of the Romans. So now the Roman frontline had been drawn into a position of being attacked from the sides. As impressive as this move was, it was never going to win the battle alone. However, the one advantage that Hannibal did have over Varro was the number of cavalry. So it would be important for Hannibal to ensure that he took advantage of that statistic by engaging the Roman cavalry with his own. The Roman cavalry should have been responsible for defending the flanks of the infantry so that the Carthaginians could not get behind Roman ranks. However, when the Carthaginian cavalry were able to nullify the Roman cavalry, the Carthaginian infantry were able to begin to surround the Roman army. With Varro in command of the Roman army, his fellow consul Paulus was in with the troops. And this was not a great place to be at this moment in time. The Roman cavalry had been chased from defending the infantry and now the Libyans had managed to enclose the circle around the Romans. And what happened next was particularly grim. The Romans had to fight outwards from the middle of the circle and the Carthaginians just made the circle tighter and tighter. It was impossible for the Romans to defend themselves. Somehow Hannibal had managed to turn inferior numbers into a superior position. It was one of the most incredible moments in military history, but it was about to turn into one of the deadliest. The individual Romans began to huddle together to protect their backs. But the Carthaginians were slaughtering the Romans on the perimeter and the huddle was becoming smaller and smaller. Many Romans would have surely have been crushed in the middle of this pressurised huddle. They certainly would not have been able to engage with the enemy. So Hannibal had managed to render most of the Roman army as ineffective. If you had been impressed by Hannibal's ability to win at Trebia and Lake Trasimene, then this tactical victory was the best and it was quite unbelievable. There are accounts of Romans within this huddle 
seeing suicide as the only means by which to escape this hellacious situation that they found themselves in. The consul Paulus was unable to save himself being in the huddle with his men and the other consul Varro could only take the decision to flee the battlefield. By darkness, the Romans had been conclusively massacred and those who survived must have been left scratching their heads and wondering how on earth their vastly superior numbers had allowed themselves to be defeated in such a humiliating fashion on land which was their own imperial soil. Aftermath The shame of Rome was difficult for them to come to terms with. The city would undergo a period of mourning for their dead. Out of over 80,000 Romans, less than 15,000 are thought to have survived and so it can be assumed that many Roman families were directly affected by the losses. As such, the Roman Senate would have had to have reacted properly for the sake of national confidence. Human sacrifices were made to the Roman gods in a desperate attempt to please them as they must have seen their defeat as a divine punishment. The Carthaginian victory begs the question, why did Hannibal not march on the capital city of Rome itself, as this must have been the perfect opportunity to defeat the Romans? Either Hannibal had so much confidence in himself that he believed that he could make the march on his own terms and it didn't matter what the Romans did next, or Carthage itself denied Hannibal the resources that he believed that he required in order to get the job done. In hindsight, it really does seem like a mystery why Carthage did not jump all over this opportunity to kick Rome when it was down. There are so many opinions about this and a logical one for me is that Carthage believed that it needed to debilitate the Roman Republic's imperial status by persuading the different societies to defect from Rome to Carthage and that Carthage knew that even with these amazing victories that they would still need to do more before they could take on the city of Rome. You only need to go into the future and see how long it took Rome to besiege an extremely weak city of Carthage to understand that an established ancient city under siege does not always collapse easily. Next week we are going to continue to follow the story of Hannibal after the Battle of Cannae. Varro would have to return to Rome without his fellow consul Paulus and without dozens of Roman senators, all of which were slaughtered at Cannae. Despite being responsible for the Roman army at the time of its massacre at Cannae, and despite having to deal with the ridicule of this embarrassing defeat, Varro was still able to maintain an important role in the Roman Senate, and was allowed to keep a consular role by being made a proconsul, which is the only way that a consul 
can maintain their status after their traditional year as consul is over. We can't be sure exactly when Varro died, but we do see his name popping up again and again during the rest of the Second Punic War. But even though he had a senatorial role, he wouldn't be given any kind of influential military role, with the rise of Scipio Africanus as the nation's favourite. We still believe that Varro visited North Africa and was part of a delegation who was sent on diplomatic business with the Numidians and their king Massinissa. And this was on or after the Carthaginian defeat at the end of the Second Punic War. After that, he disappears from history. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I was really excited for this week's episode. The Battle of Canny is an incredible story. It's just like, it is gruesome to say the least, but it's just incredible how such a large army managed to get outwitted in such an incredible manner. It's just an unbelievable story. Um, And I know often when you go back in, in this sort of era of history sometimes it's debatable exactly how accurate the story that we've um, inherited in the modern age is but really I mean it it probably is true and it's something unbelievable it's just ridiculously unbelievable land battle and uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to the story of it and and I was really enjoyed writing it and uh, very excited about presenting it to you now, if you're enjoying these episodes, if you uh, if you like the episodes, I couldn't write them without the material that I own and that I've purchased um, in the lead up to writing these episodes. So I have to study quite hard to make the episodes as authentic and, and as accurate as possible. And uh, I'm often trying to triangulate sources so that um, you know I'm not just relying on one source and not just taking the word of one uh, text or source uh, in order to write my episode so in order to do that I have to invest in some uh, books and and online resources that kind of thing and uh, in order to do that obviously I have to pay for those things and um, if um, you uh, want to aid me in the purchase of those things and you can you can donate to the podcast and all you have to do is just go directly to the history of the world podcast.com website which is a pretty good website it's there's pretty pretty good amount of stuff on there that you can muck about with um so it's worth going there just for that anyway but if you want to make a contribution to the podcast then just click on the patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You can do it for as little as $1 a month. Those $1 a month contributions, I say every week, they really do add up and help. So don't feel any shame for $1 a month. It's an absolutely uh, vital part of the funding for the podcast. And for those of you who do donate more, I'm incredibly grateful to you for for just surrendering um, some of your personal hard-earned money Uh, just because you obviously enjoy the work that I'm doing. So really do appreciate that. When you do make donations to the History of the World podcast, you become a member of the History of the World podcast 
Illuminati. And we have some new members this week. So welcome to the History of the World podcast Illuminati. To Patrick Trudgeon. To Chris Hilderman. And to Michael P. McCormack. Thank you very much to each of you. And uh, enjoy your membership of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And uh, I hope you get to enjoy some of the associated rewards that History of the World podcast Illuminati members can qualify for. Thank you very much. Let's, uh, let's read out some emails. Let's read out some emails that have been kindly sent in by various listeners of the podcast. Um, it's uh, This one's from Vincent DiCarlo. He says, thanks for the history of the world. I'm afraid it's time to start admitting that you are in fact a historian, though one without an institutional credential or affiliation. I am planning to teach ancient history to ninth graders in the fall. Since I'm a lawyer and not a professional historian, I'm giving myself a crash course and gathering material for my classes. Your podcasts are the most interesting and comprehensive resource I have been able to find, other than Wikipedia and the resources to which it leads. Surprisingly, your podcasts are also the most reliable source I have found. Last night, when I was unable to listen to your episode on Eridu without registering for Audio Boom, oh, I'll come back to that, I turned to Chester Starr's A History of the Ancient World and Mary Bower's The History of the Ancient World and found them not only inferior in coverage but structure um, or and structure to your podcast but riddled with apparent errors. For example, Bauer asserts that geologist tells us that at about 11,000 BC, she sounds like she's talking about the Younger Dryas, ice spread down from the polar caps far to the south down almost to the Mediterranean Sea. I realise it's hard to keep the various advances and retreats of the glaciers straight but we don't need history books adding to the confusion. Um, yeah, well, look, I mean, it's um, it's good that we're listening to different sources. I, I really do think that that is correct, you know. There's no point in listening just to my podcast. Uh, my podcast is an, is an entertainment podcast, really. It's a, it's a historical narrative, but it's supposed to be entertaining. Um, if you actually want to learn about these periods, then you should take many sources. And um, sometimes you'll notice differences in the information and then you can go and investigate that for yourself. Uh, one of the points that I said to Vincent is the fact that if you're like me and you're publishing a weekly episode um, uh, you know, of a podcast, which is probably the only way that we're going to complete this project, um, you know, if we're going to complete it and come right up to the modern age, a weekly episode is the only way that we're really going to get it done. And in studying weekly, publishing an episode weekly, you know, sometimes I'm going to probably try and skirt across a bit of study just to try and be as efficient as possible. So it's a, it's, it's a bit of a balancing act between um, how hard do you study, how how tough do I want to go into uh, corroborating things that, and in some cases, they can't be corroborated. So it's um it's a fascinating discussion. And uh, should I be making a history podcast as a non-academic or not? Should I be allowed to publish something that is studied so quickly and thrown together? Um, you know, there's many questions that can be answered. So, very interesting email, Vincent, and good luck in uh, teaching your ninth graders. 
Next email is from uh, Alex Schwanker. Hi Chris, my girlfriend has been listening to Volume 1, The Prehistoric Age, but it appears that it no longer works. I get a permission denied error from Audioboom when I try streaming, uh, when I try the streaming link and the download is 404'd. I've tried multiple browsers and VPN, but to no avail. She would like to continue listening to your series, but Volume 1 isn't available on YouTube, and as the private hosting appears to be down, uh, just letting you know she'd like to keep learning, and she is really enjoying your podcasts. Uh, that's from Alex Schwanker. Um, and uh, Alex's girlfriend is Laura Tanner. And uh, thank you for being a fan of the podcast, Laura. It really does mean a lot that people are listening to the podcast. And yes, I think a lot of people are stumbling across this issue that we've got at the moment. We've changed uh, the hosting platform of the podcast from Audio Boom to Anchor. And as such, uh, the Audio Boom uh, links no longer work, which include the download links and the embedded. Um, players on the historyofworldpodcast.com website. Um, I would encourage you just to go to the website if you can't find uh, a link that works immediately. Just go to the uh, historyofworldpodcast.com website and go to the listen link, and uh, you'll find a number of different places that you can listen to the podcast. I've updated it so all of the bad links have been removed. Um, and um, if you want to download the podcast, and you can do it from Podbean, I know that Podbean, I should say, and um, the uh, the the they can all be downloaded there. You just hit the download link with the right click, and uh, away you go. Let's uh, just quickly wrap up with some reviews. Um, I've got one from Nicole Blair uh, from Canada. Uh, who's put, I love this podcast. I never got hooked on history in school, but in my early 30s, I began to realise how interesting it was. I searched for something entertaining, but also easy to digest as a newbie to the subject and have really enjoyed listening to Chris narrate. I'm very excited to keep listening into the ancient and medieval world, a very well-researched and well-delivered podcast. Uh, thank you, Nicole. Uh, yeah, same as me, really. I, I didn't really get um, into history um, until later on, really, I, I think. And um, I I don't know what was wrong with me as a, as a youngster. So I did sort of read briefly history books, but it was, wasn't really until I, I sort of in my late 20s, really, that I started um, really buying loads of books and, and reading and um, here I am all these years later making a podcast so yep uh, it's never too late to get into it a quarantined Canadian has put so full of knowledge excellent podcast and so much information the podcast covers things that are only brushed on or bypassed completely in history classes I've managed to fly through volume one and two in no time during this quarantine and look forward to to what is to come. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much. Very kind. Um, Trudgeman uh, from the United States of America has put wonderful podcasts. I love listening to this podcast on my commute to work. Now that I'm caught up, I look forward to the weekly upload as I start my work week. I appreciate Chris's hard work to keep up a weekly schedule as I imagine this isn't easy. Chris's volume one on prehistory got me hooked 
on early hominids as I didn't know much about the evolution of human beings that we are today. Uh, Chris was able to describe what could have been a very technical and scientific presentation to a very compelling and interesting narrative. He approaches the ancient world and now Greece and Rome in the same creative and compelling narrative. Keep up the great work, Chris, and I look forward to being a subscriber for many years to come. Well, yeah, it, it, it blows me away how kind people are about the podcast. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Really, really, um, you know, humbling to read those out. And, and, and I sort of only read them out out of respect for the people who sent them. I, I think you deserve to be, um, to, you know, you deserve to be heard, you know, and you deserve to be appreciated for the time that you took to write, to write the message. So some people call it, self-promotion or or you know whatever else it is egotistical maybe it's not really meant to be that way it's, it's really just an appreciation for the people who've taken the time to send the message so thank you thank you so much to each and every one of you um next week what's got what have we got coming up next week we're going to be talking more punic wars uh we're going to be covering the battle that took place 14 years after the Battle of Cannae when the political landscape really dramatically changed. We're going to be talking about the Battle of Zama from 202 BCE. And we're going to be talking more about Hannibal and we're also going to be talking more about Scipio. Um, I'm, um, I'm pleased that no one has actually got stuck into me for calling him Scipio and not Scipio. Uh, but... They haven't, and uh, maybe maybe they will next week. We'll uh, we'll have to find out. But thanks for listening once again, and uh, don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.